walk along the street of sorrow, the boulevard of broken dreams, where Gigolo and Gigolette can take a kiss without regret, so they forget their broken dreams. You laugh tonight and cry tomorrow. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and Hollywood as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. I'm David Chen from SlashFilm.com, and joining me today, he is the man who played the voice of Uncle Ub in the 2012 film The Lorax. Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I, I do have a story on Uncle Ugg that is. Never been in the podcast. Uncle Ub, UBB, Stephen. UBB. Yeah, well, you know, they're all the same to me, man. All the uncles I play. Hey, uh, <laughs> I played Uncle Ub right before I had my heart surgery. And I seriously was thinking, this could be the role that takes me out. This could be the very last <laughs> thing I did. And I was having, I think you called angina or angina, uh, where, where, you, where if you get too excited, you start having heart pains. So I was having some heart pains when I started doing Uncle Ub, and I thought, please, 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 dear God, get me through Uncle Ub without dropping dead in this studio so I could go have surgery in a couple of days and... and uh, and and I won't be just a, a sad, sad notice in the Hollywood Reporter. Unknown character actor drops dead as Uncle Ub in studio. Well, uh, that sounds like a harrowing story, Stephen. Here, let me make you a standing offer, okay? Yes, yes. Is if you ever have a role that you're not the most proud of... Uh, and you are about to enter a life-threatening situation, feel free to let me know. And we can do like a Tobolowsky Files after that so that it's not the last, that role is not the last thing you ever did. You, you'll have produced a Tobo Files episode, which I, I'm guessing is slightly, slightly, not that much more, but slightly more meaningful than a role like Uncle Up. Yeah, I got to say, except people have, have stopped me on the street, David. They have stopped, not many like maybe three, have stopped me on the street and said, I really loved your Uncle Ub. So, so you know, you got to respect the Ub. you got to respect the Ub. <laughs> if, if there's one takeaway from today's episode, you got to respect the Ub. Uh, well, yeah. Stephen, throughout the years, you know, uh, there have been many questions for you about uh, how it is you got to be where you are, how, how it is you got to be offered roles like Uncle Ub. Uh, you know, these, these roles are just falling into your lap. Uncle, the ubs left and right are falling into your lap. And, uh, of course, a huge part of that is training, actor training, right? Yeah. And uh, you've had quite a bit of actor training. Um, but, yeah, I mean, one question that, that people have asked is, like, is it important to go to acting school? Is it, is it important to have, uh, you know, legitimate acting training? Uh, maybe tell us a little bit about your college experiences, well, you know. Well, this, um, is a, this is a very important question you ask because I, I talk to various young people all the time. And the great thing about wanting to be an actor is that anything, anything you study, anything you learn – is something that you could later use as an actor if you're playing a doctor or a lawyer or a scientist. I mean, you could, uh, like when I went to school, I, I, I don't know if I told you this. I, it's kind of through the uh, podcast we're going to be telling this era of time. We weren't allowed 
to take acting classes when I went to college, David, when I was a freshman. Uh, there were, when I was at SMU, there were several required courses for freshmen, and we're talking 1969. The edition dictated that you had to take math, science, religion, the New Testament only, a literature class. I took poetry. I hoped it would mean less reading, and it did, and humanities. Humanities class is like a Star Wars movie. The title is the spoiler. Well, it's the whole story. When you go see, say, Return of the Jedi, you know right away who will return and who probably isn't there at the beginning. In humanities class, we discussed, close your ears if you don't want to know the ending, what it is to be human. I didn't understand the premise. Since everyone in the class was a human, you would think that anything anyone said would be right no matter how stupid it was. That was not the case. The professors determined what was human and what was not. The prevailing opinions of the day were that war and racism were bad and that men were sexist. The professors didn't tackle the tougher question as to why these human pastimes had been so popular since the beginning of time. Sidebar. Sexist was a new word back then, at least for me. Marla, a fellow freshman, gave me a tutorial as we walked across campus to an orientation assembly at McFarland Auditorium. Marla explained, being sexist means you only want women for their bodies. Well, yeah, I said, and, and what? Well, that's disgusting, Marla instructed. What's disgusting? Wanting women's bodies. No, it's not. Yes, it is, Marla said with growing annoyance. No, it's not, I said. That's how the machine works. What machine? Life. Men chase women. If they're lucky, they catch one. They get married. They make more people. And then those people grow up and start chasing each other. It's the machine. You sound like a sexist pig. I am not a sexist pig, I said defensively. In truth, I could have been a sexist pig. I had never heard the term before. It was a relatively new insult in 1969, but I wasn't a fool. I knew it was bad. Pig is almost always bad when used to refer to anything other than barbecue. Once, my mother called me a pig for eating the leftover food off of other people's plates at Wyatt's cafeteria. My natural assumption was that a sexist pig was a regular sexist with poor hygiene. I could tell Marla was mad at me. I asked her why. That only made her matter. She began to over-enunciate her words. So, you don't think women can be lawyers and bank presidents and real estate brokers? Of course they can, I said. But I don't see what the two have to do with one another. If you don't think women want to be chased by men, explain the bikini. Please. And please tell me why girls were stuffing their bras with half a box of Kleenex in high school. Tell me why they wear makeup and all those beautiful dresses at the prom. And why are there so many love songs on the radio? Marla looked at me with disgust. You have just described the prison men have created for women. Listen to Gloria Steinem. A woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. What? You heard me. Fish don't ride bicycles. Exactly, Marla said. Well, I don't understand what that's supposed to mean. It doesn't make any sense. Exactly, Marla said with triumph. We arrived at McFarlane. I jumped in front of her and grabbed the door handle. What if I wanted to open this door for you? Isn't that being a gentleman? 
I can open my own doors. Out of some form of passive aggression, I opened the auditorium door for Marla anyway. She stood, motionless, seething with rage. I let go of the door. She walked up, opened it, and walked inside on her own. I called after her. You just walked into a very lonely world. I had humanities three times a week. We would take a big topic like man's inhumanity to man and discuss the pros and cons. It wasn't a complete waste of time. Once we talked about Godzilla. Yes, yes, we talked about Godzilla and how the monster could be a Jungian symbol of authority. Godzilla has always been one of my favorite monsters. And I think we could have gotten a lot out of stretching this topic over several classes. Uh, Like, where did the human impulse to wear a Godzilla suit come from in the first place? Why was the first human in a Godzilla suit so scary and current humans in Godzilla suits silly looking? Is it the suit? Or is it the human? Or is it the human that made the suit? I think the topic could be expanded into a whole new area of humanities. And this was years before academics had the guts to consider if Godzilla was gay, straight, or if he was even gender-specific. A very popular philosopher taught in freshman humanities was John Stuart Mill. He came up with an idea we call relativism. In a nutshell, Mill said that what we know of the world comes from our individual experience. Our reality is limited by what we've seen and what we've sensed. Professor Alan Charles Coors, in The Birth of the Modern Mind and Intellectual History of the 17th and 18th Centuries, gives an example of how Mill's relativism works. Someone who's only lived in the tropics would think you were crazy if you told him that you could walk on water. He would tell you that no one he knows and no one in a thousand generations of his people have ever known anyone who's been able to walk on water, so it can't be true. However, if you were to transport that man from the jungles of Borneo to the Netherlands during the wintertime, he sees the people are not only able to walk on water, they could skate on it. The man from the jungle is amazed. His concept of water has changed, and in a broader sense, his entire reality has changed. Because what he thought was true wasn't. He becomes aware that everything he knows has been filtered through his limited perspective. I've always been an optimist. I assume it was a genetic gift from my mother. For most of my life, the glass has been half full— Even when it was empty, I would hold it up to the light and marvel what a lovely piece of crystal it was. Optimism is not knowledge. It, too, is a filter. Throughout my childhood, I happily encountered large doses of the same. Same friends, same yard, same woods, same creek, same teacher, the same threats. Perspective-wise, I was a man from the jungles of Borneo. College was about to give me a large dose of walking on water. The first week of school, I got my schedule, bought my books, tried to make my dorm room a home. There is an advantage to having an extremely small area to work with. It's easy to put your stamp on it. I put my books on the shelf, boom. That was the design element of the room. I assigned an area in my closet to throw my dirty underwear. That took care of housekeeping. But what do I do for fun? A house is not a home unless it's a source of joy. Most of the joys of home come from imagining you're somewhere else. 
the easiest way to travel is with music. This was a couple of years before the miracle of 8-track tapes burst onto the scene, so I lugged my reel-to-reel tape recorder from home and set it up on my desk. Some electronic stores were convinced that reel-to-reel was the next big thing. The sales pitch was that a tape would never skip or get scratched. There were no space limitations, like with record albums. Entire operas could fit on a reel-to-reel tape. You just had to be able to tolerate opera. But the real doorway to the future was that you could buy blank tapes and make your own albums. Man in control of his music, the impossible dream. Before computers, techno-nerds, who were the evolutionary descendants of audiovisual nerds who pushed movie projectors around in high school, lived almost exclusively in the realm of electronics, more specifically, in the realm of music. My uncle Nathan was a techno-nerd that predated audiovisual nerds. He was a hammer-and-screwdriver nerd. He was a fix-your-own-lawnmower nerd. He told me about high fidelity and the new wonderland of inputs and exputs, woofers and tweeters, red wires and white wires, recording directly from the source. I was inspired. I went to Crabtree's Electronics and bought a blank reel-to-reel tape. I was a little sketchy on the details of actual recording. For my first project, I recorded two hours off of my dad's clock radio by holding my little microphone up to the radio's tiny two-inch speaker. I love my tape. I didn't know how to edit, so it includes all of the news, all the commercials, and the DJs promoting drag strip races at Green Valley Motor Speedway. For variety, I splurged and bought two pre-recorded tapes, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds. These three tapes became the soundtrack of my new life. After I moved in, I hardly saw my roommate, James Miller McClure, I didn't know what our future would be after his first efforts to ditch me. Jim usually came into the room after I had gone to bed. Once classes started, homework became our occupation. Jim spent more time in the room studying. I always did my homework with the tape player on. After two straight days of listening to Puff the Magic Dragon, Jim asked me if he could use the tape recorder too. I said sure. The next day, we were listening to Tony Bennett. I stopped working. I watched the reel-to-reels turn as I listened to I Left My Heart in San Francisco. It was hypnotic. I heard every word in a new way. His voice was so evocative. There was so much loss and yearning. And yet there was still such joy in reflection. There There was a new story in every line. I rewound the tape and listened again and again and again. Jim looked up from his reading, What's up there, Rumi? he asked. I don't know. Uh, I I don't think I ever heard him sing before. You never heard of Tony Bennett? You live in a cave? No, I'm sure I heard him on the radio. My dad listens to the Perry Como station. I just never paid attention. So what do you think? Jim asked. I think he could be the greatest singer I've ever heard. Jim sat up in bed. You think? I do. I must have made some sort of face prompting Jim to ask, What's wrong? Well, just I can't believe I heard this guy and still never heard him. So you really like him. As far as I'm concerned, we could listen to him all the time. Are you saying Tony could be the new Peter, Paul, and Mary? 
I am. I have a lot of catching up to do, I said. Great. And not, not that there's anything wrong with Peter, Paul, and Mary. You're just a little folky. The next day, I bought a reel-to-reel of Tony Bennett and went into heavy rotation with This Land is Your Land. In the new age of Cream and Steppenwolf, room 410 Morrison Hall became the realm of wildly unpopular musical tastes. Our floor monitor, Howard, was right about more than the power of music to bring people together. Jim and I had a lot of the same classes. We did homework together. But more importantly, we bitched and moaned together. Nothing is more binding than a common complaint. Add beer and it becomes superglue. Jim had a car, a Mustang. That already elevated him above the rest of us. One evening after we finished our homework, Jim asked me if I wanted to go to the CPL. I had no idea what the CPL was, so in typical response that seemed to define my later life, I said, sure, sounds good to me. The CPL stood for Coliseum Parking Lot. It also stood for getting plastered. Southern Methodist University was by definition a Methodist school, and the Methodists didn't allow alcohol. Well, this was a non-issue for me. I didn't drink. I grew up in Oak Cliff, which is as close to a theocracy that ever existed in the United States. The combined forces of the Methodists, the Baptists, and the Church of Christ succeeded in banning alcohol from the area. In Oak Cliff, people drank soda pop. Lots of it. If you wanted anything harder, you had to go for the foamy lime punch at church parties. It was rumored that the closest beer was 22 miles away on the other side of the Trinity. Something about the specificity of the mileage made me believe it. I never found out. Sidebar. I remember having alcohol once when I was a child. It was a Sunday afternoon after Sunday school. We were having a family gathering at my Uncle Jaime's house. He gave me a taste of something called Galliano because I liked the shape of the bottle. My eyes crossed. To this day, I'm reminded of Galliano every time I smell paint thinner. I remember Jaime laughing as I choked on the fumes. He called it an acquired taste. It is a taste I have never acquired. Not only that, I've never lived anywhere that had room for a Galliano bottle. It's so tall. If you want to drink Galliano, it has to be worked into the design of the house, just like a stereo or a television. Let's see, let's see, the books that go here, the Chagall lithograph there. Oh, oh, and here's a perfect nook for the bottle of Galliano. Drinking Galliano made me aware on some unconscious level that humans were capable of doing anything. Jim's Mustang was a thing of beauty. Still had new car smell. He told me his father was an insurance salesman and leased a new Mustang every year. Jim was the beneficiary of this policy. We grabbed two six-packs at the 7-Eleven and made our way to the Coliseum on a journey of discovery. The rumors were true. We pulled into the back of a long line of cars heading into the parking lot. It was like a drive-in movie without the movie. Cars were driving slowly around with their lights off, looking for an appropriate place to stop. Most pulled into the first empty space they could find so they could begin drinking as quickly as possible. If you had a date, you looked for a secluded area where you could make out and drink. Jim kept passing up available parking spots. I was perplexed. I said, well, how about over here? 
Oh, there's one, Jim. Oh, here's a good spot. Jim got irritated and said, no, 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 not right. He was looking for something. I wasn't sure what. After driving around for about 15 or 20 minutes, he finally pulled into a spot on the far side of the CPL pointing away from the campus. Jim said, here we go. You could see the stars from here. We pulled into the darkness. Jim reached down and gave me a Budweiser and took one for himself. We talked briefly about classes before the conversation shifted to girls. I was uncomfortable. I was not very experienced. I had only been on about a dozen dates in my life, and most of those involved going to the Dallas Summer Musicals. Jim talked about his girlfriend back in Shreveport, Martha Terja, how he once climbed a tree to see her, how he once fell off of a roof for her. Feeling the need to hold up my end of the discussion, I told Jim that once I did climb out of a fourth-floor hotel window in San Antonio to see Becky Anderson. Did you fall, he asked. Fall where? Out of a window. No, no. We made it to the ground. No one was injured. Jim nodded, but seemed unimpressed that I escaped romance unwounded. The conversation surprisingly shifted from girls to what would be the main event of the evening, and almost every evening afterwards, acting. Jim was consumed by his love of the theater. He was a star for his high school drama program at Jesuit. He never bragged. He was always overwhelmed by his deficiencies. He cited the truly great performances he admired, Olivier's Othello, Olivier's Archie Rice in The Entertainer. He compared Olivier's Hamlet to Gielgud's Hamlet, Jim said he had recordings of both if I ever wanted to listen to them in the room. Jim was an admirer of Montgomery Clift, Robert Mitchum, Carl Malden, James Dean, George C. Scott, basically any actor who got beaten to a pulp on screen. But Jim's deepest and most penetrating love was for Marlon Brando. Jim and I watched a double feature of A Streetcar Named Desire and On the Waterfront at a new revival house near the campus. As we walked back to the dorm, Jim talked poetically about every moment in the movie as if it were new, an undiscovered reality that had the power to change the world. Jim wanted to be Brando. That explained his physique and his insistence on doing bicep curls in the room several times a day. That's why Jim was dedicated to being a complete Stanislavski-trained method actor. Stanislavski was like Tony Bennett to me. I had heard of him, but didn't know what Stanislavski was all about. Jim gave me a rough sketch of the man as a director of the Moscow Art Theater, whatever that was, and his relationship to Anton Chekhov, whoever he was. Jim described his method as a technique for an actor to completely and consistently become another human being. It was a strange form of magic that was far from my experience. Jim said it wasn't magic. It was a craft that required work and commitment. That first night in the CPL, I told Jim I was ready to commit to the discipline of acting. Of course, I was completely sloshed on two beers and had no idea what I was talking about. Commitment is something we only see in retrospect. A physicist might try to describe commitment as effort over time, but that would be incorrect. Science hasn't figured out a way to measure passion. That's the volatile ingredient. That's what makes you work for nothing. 
It's what makes you have the courage to hear people tell you no again and again for no good reason and for the rest of your life, and you still go on. We always seem to jump to the biggest decisions in our lives before we know what it'll mean. Commitment is like buying on credit. You never know what it will really cost until you make the purchase. I always thought being a professional actor would be fun, not work. I never considered actors to be real artists. Jim corrected me. He carried the torch for art every day. He scoffed at anyone not willing to work hard enough or take the craft seriously. The first week of school, Jim McClure taught me two lessons that changed my perspective. The seriousness of the craft of acting and that beer tastes better when you drink it looking at the stars. I left my heart in San Francisco High on a hill It calls to me John Stuart Mill runs into the same problem a lot of great thinkers do when they come up with a good idea. Any attempt to define reality can become a wormhole to nowhere when you carry it to its logical extreme. Without much effort, relativism can become something termed absolute relativism. Absolute relativism begins with the idea that we are all products of our experience. But then it takes it a step further proposing that our personal experiences so affect who we are, no one else can understand us. Today, this has become the go-to rebuttal to end any discussion. Men don't have a uterus, so they can't talk about women. White people can't know what life is like for black people. Therefore, true understanding is impossible. Interracial friendships are suspect and on and on down the wormhole. I'm not blaming humanities class, but it was especially irritating for bullies to invoke philosophy to support their meanness. And daily life on campus was mean. The ghost of John Stuart Mill drifted into every conversation. In class, in the student union, in the cafeteria, the popular recreation was talking to someone for, say, five minutes, breaking them down into their component parts, and exiling them. The reason for exclusion weren't confined to big issues. No, in my case, I was dismissed for being white, for being a man, Jewish, a meat eater, for living in Texas, for living in North Dallas, and for being a Gemini. Everyone was a potential outcast. I quit trying to make new friends. As I sat alone in the school cafeteria, I became aware of how many others were sitting alone. It was the portrait of a failure of philosophy. There had to be a missing piece. Something had to exist to counter John Stuart Mill's relativism. Otherwise, the world falls apart. At the end of our first week was the trial by fire in the drama department. Auditions. Lots of them. On Friday night were freshman auditions where all of the first-year students had to present a classical and a modern piece for the faculty— And then over the weekend were auditions for the main stage productions for the first semester. I was confident I would shine at the freshman auditions. 
I had won the Best Actor Award in the one-act play contest for the entire state of Texas for my performance in the dual roles of Poseidon, God of the Deep, and Talthibius, the Greek soldier who enters at the end of Trojan Women with a dead baby and cries. I knew very few of my peers could compete with that. I picked two pieces that were high school crowd-pleasers. I opened with the young, lovesick Orlando from Shakespeare's As You Like It, and then, to show my range, I closed with Henry Drummond, the 60-year-old lawyer from Inherit the Wind. To highlight my versatility, I played Drummond with a limp and a hint of a Walter Brennan accent, making him resemble one of my favorite TV characters, Grandpappy Amos on The Real McCoys. I walked onto the big Bob Hope proscenium stage and delivered a heartfelt performance. The audience of faculty and directing students applauded politely when I finished, but to my ears it was the fifth curtain call at Carnegie Hall. John Arnone, a senior in the department, came up to me in the green room afterwards and officially introduced himself. Hello, Stephen. Is that right? Yes, yes, Stephen. Stephen Tobolowsky. Well, hi, I'm John. I've been here forever. Look, I just saw you in there and was intrigued by your audition. Thank you. Yes. I I like the Henry Drummond piece, but what was that accent? Judge Roy Bean? No, no. It was Walter Brennan. Oh, right, right. Well, that makes sense. Walter Brennan played Judge Roy Bean, so good for you. Uh, I may be out of line mentioning this, and I don't mean it in a bad way, but you should focus on parts that are... What are you? Eighteen? Yes. Right. Eighteen. Focus on parts your age. High school, and unfortunately here at college, are probably the only places young people play old men. In the real world of professional acting, they get old people to play old parts, middle-aged people to play middle-aged parts. An actor's range isn't about what span of years you can play. It's about what parts of your heart and your feelings and your thoughts you could shine a light on when you play a role. That is range. Do you know what I mean? Well, I was trying to do that with Henry Drummond. Yes, yes, and the limp was a nice touch. Let me put it another way. Now is the time to build your acting muscles. No one expects you to be good at 18. Most actors don't come into their own until after they've lived some, like in their 40s. Well, good luck and good job. John's talk was pretty depressing. I could tell he was trying to be kind. He was trying to give me advice, but according to his timeline, I was going to be lousy for at least another 22 years. I had no time for that graceful of a learning curve. Auditions for the school's main stage productions began in two days. First, I had to decide what parts I would focus on. I only played leading roles in high school, so I looked no further down the cast list. The first problem I encountered in the auditioning process was that I had never heard of any of these plays. Transcending, Eden Beyond Eden, Royal Hunt of the Sun, The Mandrake. I asked someone in the costume shop if they knew anything about Transcending and Eden Beyond Eden. A woman sewing on a rehearsal skirt said, They're one acts, comedies, from England, I think. Do you know anything else about them? Well, Eden Beyond Eden is supposed to be hilarious. The world is covered in shit, and the last two people are floating on an island in the middle of it. Okay, I thought. 
so we're not doing our town. If I got cast, this would be the first time no one in my family would be able to come to the play. Well, that turned out to be a non-issue. I found out that both Eden Beyond Eden and Transcending were already cast. Graduate students. So I moved on to Royal Hunt of the Sun. They had copies of the play lying around for people to audition from. It was about Pizarro and the Spanish conquest of the Incan Indians in Peru. I decided to work on a speech of Pizarro's. I would have worked on the speech for the other lead, too, the chief of the Incans, Atahualpa, but I couldn't read the name or pronounce it. Jim overheard me working on my lines in the room. He laughed. What are you doing? I'm working on my audition. For what? Pizarro? (laughs) I hate to be one to break it to you, but they're never going to cast a freshman in the lead of a play. Well, there's always a first time. (laughs) Yeah, if you say so, Rumi. Cut to the chase. Jim was right. I was wrong. The director didn't even want us to open our mouths. His assistant asked all the freshman men to strip down to our underwear and walk around the stage in a circle. This is when I began to understand the kind of commitment Jim was talking about. After we walked around, our director, Jack Clay, divided us into two groups, Spanish soldiers and Incan Indians. Jim was a Spaniard. I was an Incan. Professor Clay explained that our job was to provide spectacle, scope, and occasionally help change the sets. This was the first time in my acting career I played a spear carrier, and it was the only time they handed me a real spear. One night in the CPL, I was listening to Jim's drunken hymns to Brando and James Dean, Chekhov and Ibsen, Aeschylus and Euripides, and the entire pantheon of great performers known and unknown throughout time. His passion made me rethink what it meant to be an actor. Jim was not entirely correct when he said it was all craft. The earliest dramas were written as invocations to the gods. There was something holy about performance. Over the centuries, showbiz may have lost its reverential tone, but it was still a type of magic. And we actors were not alone. One evening after dinner, I ran into our floor monitor, Howard. He was on his way home for one of his conjugal visits with his wife. In passing, I asked how his symphony was coming. He turned and raised his eyebrows and shrugged in a grim judgment as to how far away he felt from its completion. He was looking for the magic, too. There were lots of arts majors on the fourth floor of Morrison Hall. There was Bill Fagan. He specialized in portraits. He was brilliant. He did a pencil sketch of him sitting on a toilet, and it looked just like him. Tommy was a dancer. He invited Jim and me to a recital. He was one of the few freshmen that was going to take part. I thought, well, this is going to be a little silly, you know, Tommy in tights. The lights came up for his pas de dieu. His partner was tall and willowy. She did a series of turns to the center of the stage. Tommy stepped slowly into the light and then leapt towards her. The audience gasped. I gasped. I had never seen a human move so high, so fast, so powerfully, and with such grace. I couldn't breathe. I don't think anyone else could either. The piece was about love, or maybe it was about passion. I'm not sure. But all of our eyes were on Tommy, awaiting his next moment of departure. 
Tommy did much more than make me a fan of ballet for the rest of my life. He showed me the quest, both the goal and the prize. All of us on the fourth floor of Morrison Hall had one thing in common. We were looking for a way to leave ourselves. If only for a moment. It could be a single line drawn on a canvas or a single line delivered on stage. No matter what the discipline, we were looking for the dancer's leap, the moment of transcendence where the real becomes unreal and we land someplace new. In acting, the audience knows it's watching something that's fundamentally unreal, whether they're sitting in a theater or sitting in front of a movie screen. We know that there is a script that has been memorized and rehearsed. But if the actor is trained and the director allows us to look at the right place at the right time, we forget all of that and we become one with the story. We find the moment of departure and the tribesmen from Borneo can walk on water. It was Tommy's grace that taught me that John Stuart Mill didn't put enough value in magic. It's through the arts that the man can understand the woman, the black, the white, the rich, the poor, the powerful with the oppressed. The artist is the soldier of empathy, who surrenders his life to show the bullies in the school cafeteria that they can never win, that there will always be more to unite us than divide us. How do you keep the music playing? How do you make it last? How do you keep a song from fading too fast? I've never been a fan of bullies, of any kind. And we had plenty of them in Oak Cliff, at school, on the playground, at the park. I had my fill of them. It was the same story. Usually some bigger kid wanted to look into a mirror and see a more powerful version of himself. The reflective surface of choice was the terror in someone else's eyes. And it was always someone smaller, weaker, more vulnerable. And it usually involved a sucker punch, hitting someone when or where they least expected it. I assumed Jim McClure was another bully in my life. Someone who would shame or threaten me in hopes of making me vanish or become a lawyer. He was not. He was unlike anyone I had ever met. Jim and I were not bound by kindnesses toward one another like most friends. We were competitive. We fought. We made up. We shared our deepest hopes and deepest fears. We discussed our disappointments and self-doubts. We talked about our dreams and offered occasional support and occasional cautions. We became intimate. Not in the lingo of afternoon television shows where intimate means sex, but in the lingo of the human heart. What Jim did mattered to me. It was important. His opinion counted. It felt like we had no secrets. In Royal Hunt of the Sun, Jim and I were more or less equals. We each had a handful of lines, and we were determined to make the most of them. 
not not necessarily in service of the play, but in service of the play in such a way that we stood out and we would catch the eye of our professors and hopefully move up the food chain. Each of us wanted to be like Kathy Bates, who was rumored to be the best actress in the department, if you believe the whispers in the hallway. Our director, Jack Clay, told the freshman cast of Spaniards they would have to start growing their beards, and if we were Incans, we should shave our legs. Pause. I raised my hand for repeat of that last instruction. Professor Clay explained, Well, chaps, the Incans did not have body hair. Since your costumes will be a simple loincloth, you should be prepared to shave legs, chests, forearms, and backs if necessary. Again, I thought of Jim's lecture on commitment. That evening in the dorm, I asked Jim if I could borrow his electric razor. Jim was in a hurry gathering his books for a study session at the library and didn't grasp the scope of my request. He said sure, and he was off. I had no idea how to shave a leg. I didn't even know who to ask. I took Jim's electric, and without benefit of first aid, I began. The next two hours were some of the most horrific, brutal, and unrelentingly painful in my life. It was worse than watching a saw marathon on the sci-fi channel. I had to stop when Jim's electric razor was too hot to touch. It was smoking, and I was afraid it might explode. I tried to assess if I had finished the job. There was a pile of hair on the floor that made it look like we had a mountain goat in our room. My legs were not Incan-like. They were covered with an uneven mixture of stubble and bloody eczema. Jim walked into the room and saw me looking at my wounds. He put his books down and said, My God, what happened? I said, Well, I was trying to shave my legs like an Incan. Wait, you use my razor? I nodded. Well, well, mine wasn't working very good. You use my razor? Well, yeah. You use my razor to shave your legs? Jim took his razor from my hand and held it in front of my face. This is not how you shave your legs. You have to sit in a tub and soften the hair, and then you use a straight razor, or in your case, a box of straight razors. You don't use an electric like this, or you rip yourself to pieces. You'll end up looking like... And then he looked at my legs like that. Jim, I'm sorry, I'll get your razor cleaned or fixed or whatever it needs. Are you kidding? I'm never going to use that razor again. Burn it. Bury it. Throw it away. I don't care. And you're probably going to need a doctor to look at those legs or at least get a tetanus shot. And if you ever do get that date with Becky Anderson, you're going to have to explain your legs. Well, Jim, I don't imagine I'm going to have to take off my pants. Well, neither do I, but I was trying to be kind. In the race for supremacy among undergraduate theater students, it was clear that Jim's beard was superior to my legs. But although Jim was clad in armor and I was dressed in a simple loincloth, underneath we were both the same. Jack Clay decided that both Spaniard and Incan had to be covered in body paint. It was a mixture called Texas Dirt. You mix it with water, and you grab a sponge and a friend, and then you try to paint each other, hopefully without streaks. The Incan body paint was dark brown. The Spanish was a sort of hepatitis A yellow. The only reason it mattered was that after the show, we had to wash it off. Neither Jim nor I had mastered the technique to get it out of all of the nooks and crannies. 
It was an ongoing problem as the show continued. The residual makeup ended up on our sheets. Jim and I made the decision, and I stand by this decision to this day, that it was hopeless to try to completely clean ourselves and the sheets. In an effort to save energy, to save the planet, and not to waste our time with useless enterprises, we decided to keep the one set of dirty sheets on our bed until the show was finished. My brown Texas dirt and Jim's Spanish yellow made our beds look like the Shroud of Turin. A perfect impression of our not-terribly-clean bodies were becoming visible on our 200-thread-count-fitted sheets. Days passed. Body makeup thickened. The bed started to look like something from a cholera ward. Rather than being disgusted, I found the sheets remarkably comfortable. They were warmer and had an oily, whammo, slip-and-slide quality to them. I told Jim that I was thinking of just keeping the sheets on the bed until the end of the semester. Jim just stared at me and said, Rumi, they're vile. The only thing we're not doing is washing them after the show. At this point, nothing's going to clean them. Another week, I say, and then we toss them and get new sheets. And in a week, we might have tossed them, except one morning, we got a knock on our door. It was Howard, the floor monitor. Howard stared at Jim and me. What's going on in here? What are you two doing? I didn't know how to answer him. May I come in? Howard asked as he walked into our room. Uh, sure, Howard. Howard looked over the room suspiciously. Everyone on the floor is talking about the smell in here. Jim shrugged. Smell? What, you can't smell it? We looked at each other and shook our heads. It's making people sick when they pass your room. The maid said they won't come near this place. Howard caught a glimpse of brown underneath the partially made bed. He gestured, what's that? He reached over and pulled back the covers, revealing a brown body-sized stain. Good God, that's awful. How can you two live in this filth? Well, well, Howard, it's really not as bad as it looks. After you sleep on it a while, it's pretty comfortable. Feels kind of warm. Howard made a face I can't describe. Guys, sheets have to be destroyed. Tomorrow. Room has to be clean. Tomorrow. You're going to have to increase your level of hygiene if you want to stay in the dorm. Jim and I bought new sheets and began turning them into the new Shrouds of Turin. Royal Hunt of the Sun only ran two weeks, but compared to my previous runs of one or two days in gymnasiums, city parks, and school auditoriums, it felt like I just finished a year doing Oklahoma. My final assessment, in all honesty, Jim was much better in the play than I was. During one of the last technical rehearsals, Jack Clay encouraged all of the Incan Indians to watch the scenes we weren't in, which was most of the play. The show was exciting, the acting was good, the technical aspects were impressive, but Jim was special. Like me, he hardly had any lines, but he stood out by any objective unit of measurement. He had the ability to convey so much without words. He was magnetic. The eye automatically fell on him, and the eye liked what it saw. As I sat in the empty auditorium watching him, I couldn't imagine a world in which we would ever be any different. As he crossed the imaginary Andes in his armor, I took it for granted we would always be young and strong. 
as he shivered, clutching his sword for warmth in the imaginary cold of the Peruvian night. I knew he would be the young Brando. I would be the young whatever. We would always be actors. And whenever there was trouble, there would be a chance to talk. It was as close as the CPL. The Mustang was always ready to go. The stars were free. All we needed was the price of a six-pack. Of course, I was wrong on all counts. But being wrong is one of the dearest qualities of our youth. Fly me to the moon And let me play among the stars Let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. That was The Soldiers of Empathy, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky, and you're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. Stephen, who would have thought you'd go from watching your roommate perform at SMU and having these incredibly deep thoughts to one day being Uncle Ub in the <laughs> Lorax film? David, Quite a th- journey. Three people loved it. Three people loved that. <laughs> well, thanks for listening to this week's Tobolowski Files. Find more episodes of this podcast at thetobolowskifiles.com. Stephen, you're traveling around the country promoting your new book, My Adventures with God, which is available right now on Amazon. Why don't you tell people where they can find you uh, performing live in person? That's right. If you're in Los Angeles, I'm going to be at the L.A. Times Festival of Books April 23rd. And my showtime is going to be around 1.20. So get there a little early and eat from the food trucks. They have really good food trucks there. That's over by USC, the campus at USC. Uh, then on April 24th, I'm going to be in San Francisco at the JCC at 7 o'clock. And I'm going to do uh, stories and a book signing there. Then the very next day, David, I'm coming to you because you're buying me dinner. I'm going to be in Seattle the 25th at the town hall like we did before and that performance is going to be at 7:30 again stories and book signing and uh this is really special i'm going to be in woodstock new york april 28th uh woodstock is so cool it's such a great place and hopefully garth will be there and drop in you know from the band hopefully he'll be there and that's going to be at 8 p.m at uh, the Woodstock Book Fest. So if you were in New York or upstate New York, we're going to be at the Bearsville Theater in Woodstock, 8 o'clock. And and we'll do more uh, dates later, David. All right. Well, uh, find more dates at stephentobolowski.com. Spell it for us, Stephen. Uh, That would be S-T-E-P-H-E-N-T as in Tom, O-B as in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y. That's the Russian spelling. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Tobolowski Files. We'll see you next week. Adios.